Let's turn to Genesis 13 tonight. That's where we're going to be. We'll read the whole chapter. The title of my message is Dealing with Strife. So, Genesis 13, beginning in verse 1, we read, And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the south, the Negev. The southern part of Israel is what he's talking about there. And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Hai, unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. And the land was not able to bear them that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle, and the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelt then in the land. And Abraham said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. And then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. And Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent towards Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art northward, and southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever." And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. And then Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. So chapter 13, the first five verses, begins with Abraham... Sarah and Lot returning from Egypt. So Abraham and his family, including Lot, had gone down into Egypt because there was a severe famine that was in Canaan. This is all in chapter 12. I'm just summarizing it. So when they went down there, Abraham knew that Sarah was beautiful to look on and that the Egyptians would be gawking at her. And he was aware that he was heading into the land of Egypt. This was not the, the land of high morals and ethics when he's going in there, and they'd kill him and take his wife without even blinking an eye when they saw how beautiful she was. So he told her, we all know the story, he told her to say she was his sister, and it was like a half-truth, right? She was his half-sister. And that way, if they took her, he's reasoning, at least they might possibly let him live. He might be spared. Well, the thing was, they went down there, and everybody noticed Sarah's beauty. And it says that even the princes of Pharaoh noticed her beauty. So they're like, we're going to take her into Pharaoh so she can be his wife. Pharaoh takes her in and he blesses Abraham. 
gives him livestock, servants, silver, and gold because he thinks he's giving them to him for her sister. It's his sister. And what's happening is Abraham's plan is backfiring on him. So he may have gained his life and he might have got wealth, but he's just lost his wife, it looks like. And so what's going to happen? He's got all this wealth, and every time he looks at all this wealth, he's going to say, this is what I gained in exchange for my wife. That's what I gave up, the wife I loved. And he had to start feeling like, man, I think I made a huge mistake. So by coming down here into Egypt, I've just forfeited my rights to the sea, the land, and God. And all these goods I've acquired, they're not worth my wife or my God. That's what he had to start thinking. And I'm sure it doesn't say this. I'm surmising these things, some of them, right? But I'm sure he prayed and asked God to intervene and probably said, God, if you will help me, I'll go back to Canaan and serve you. We know that because when first thing he did when he got back to Canaan, we read in chapter 13, verse 6, is he headed straight to where he had set up an altar and met the Lord. And it said there he called on the name of the Lord. And I'm sure he asked God to forgive him for his doubt and unbelief and going down there and for the scheme that he had and probably repented of that and made a recommitment of himself back to that covenant. I'm sure that's what he did when it said that he called upon the name of the Lord. But did God respond when he's down there to Abraham's plight? His wife's been taken from him. He's got all these goods. It's like, what is he going to do? Well, he did. The almighty God of the universe, what had he done? He had made a promise to Abraham, right? And when he makes a promise, it's going to happen. <laughs> so he does move in. And how did he respond? It says he plagued Pharaoh and his household with great plagues. And great plagues means they were severe and overwhelming. <laughs> so the promised seed was going to come through Abraham and Sarah, and God was sovereignly overseeing that that plan wasn't messed up. So he's dealing with Pharaoh and his servants. And when that happened, when those great plagues, Pharaoh couldn't get rid of Sarah fast enough. Beautiful as she was. Who in here would want to marry a woman that's got AIDS no matter how beautiful she was? Not that Sarah did, but I'm saying it's going to make you sick like you got AIDS because you're marrying. Just get her out of here. It's not worth it. I'll find me somebody else, right? So he rebukes Abraham, doesn't he, for not telling him the truth about Sarah. And he tells him, here's what he says to him. He says, behold thy wife, take her and go. And what he's saying is, she is still your wife. I haven't touched her. Just be on your way, please. Right? She's your wife. I didn't violate her, and he didn't. God made sure that that didn't happen. And he tells his servants, he says, look, if you know what's good for you, you'll leave that couple alone. Just take them on back to the border and just give them a little shove back into Canaan and let them be on their way and just leave them alone. And that's exactly what happened. So we read here in the first five verses of chapter 13 that Abraham, Sarah, and Lot all return to the land of Canaan from Egypt. But they return a lot better off than when they left. So look at verse 2. Because of all the stuff that Pharaoh had given him on account of thinking that Sarah was his sister, he didn't ask for it back. He's just like, you take everything I've given you and just adios, get on out of here. And it says in verse 2 that Abraham, as a result, was what? Very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. And Lot also came away with a little bit of a blessing. In verse 5, it says, Lot also, which went with Abraham, he had flocks and herds and tents. 
So we aren't going to talk about it tonight, but it is significant that when Lot went down there, you know what happened to him? You know what kind of tilted him towards choosing that land near Sodom? He got a little taste of the world down in Egypt. A little taste of the worldly ways and a little taste of the world's riches. And he hadn't quite gotten over that, but that's another message. What I want to look at tonight in Genesis 13 is one principle that's here in this chapter among several. Something we can learn here, and that is that the righteous will know how to deal with strife when it comes. So Abraham and Lot, they both returned with much livestock. We just read that. They had much cattle, flocks, and herds. Lot was Abraham's nephew, and Abraham treated him just like he was a son. And I think Lot had a lot of respect for Abraham because he followed him from Haran up north all the way down into Canaan just because God had said to go there into this land away from their families. Had to have a lot of respect for him. And we know that at some point Lot was actually converted, was born again. And how do we know that? Because it says in the New Testament in Peter that he was a righteous man, that his righteous soul was vexed, vexed living in Sodom. He was a righteous person, a regenerate person, and that had to happen because of Abraham sharing the gospel with him. That's the only way you're converted. So it doesn't tell us when that happened, but as I said, it would have happened through the influence of Abraham. Abraham was like his father. He was the head of the clan that went down there, and he was due Lot's respect. That's what was due him as head of that clan back in that day. So Lot liked being around Abraham. Because everywhere Abraham lived, that's where Lot lived, went and lived. Lived with him in Canaan, went on down to him in Egypt, and now he's coming back with him to Canaan. They can't get separated from each other, but except now there is a problem that's arisen, right? Both Abraham and Lot have acquired so much livestock that there's not enough water and grazing land for them both to be close neighbors. And that's what we have here in verse 6. And the land was not able to bear them that they might dwell together, for their substance was great so that they could not dwell together. And as a result of that, strife developed. Now, it's important that it doesn't say strife developed between Abraham and Lot. The strife was between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. And I don't think it's any small addition here. When you read in verse 7, there was strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle, that it goes on to say, and the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. What that's telling us is there's people looking on. There's people watching. So the world is watching these two men and how they get along. So Abraham doesn't want this strife that's already happened between his workers and Lot's workers to come between the two of them. He doesn't want it to affect that relationship. He doesn't want this strife to escalate. And he's also concerned, what we see there, that the world's watching them, right? So how does a righteous man or woman respond when strife occurs between them and another brother or sister? And Abraham gives us the answer right here in verses 8 and 9. Abraham said unto Lot, verse 8, let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself, I pray thee, from me, and if you take the left, I'll go to the right. And if you depart to the right, I will go to the left. 
So the first thing he recognizes here is there is no place for strife between him and Lot. Why? Because he says they are brothers of the same family, of the same blood, they're close relatives. But I think Abraham is speaking at this point of more than just flesh and blood closeness. I think he's speaking of a spiritual tie that they have. They serve the same Lord. They're part of the same spiritual family. And he's saying when that's the case, there should be no strife between us. And that's the way it should be for us. So if you would put something there in Genesis 13 and turn back to Philippians 2, that principle's carried right on into the New Testament. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, If there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, verse 2, fulfill ye my joy, that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing, he says, be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem the other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. So Paul is speaking to this Philippian church, and he is begging them. In verse 1, he says, if you in this church are consoled or encouraged by your union with Christ, if you share any comfort of his love, if you enjoy the fellowship of the Spirit, if God has given you any affection and compassion for one another, now he's not saying if that's happened, he's basically saying, I know it's happened. And so that's happened, and that is the case. This is what you can do for me. Look what he says in verse 2, fulfill you my joy. He's saying, I know that's the case with you all. You all have experienced that. So fulfill my joy because Paul loved these churches. He started these churches. He was birthed these churches. These people are like his children, he would say a lot of times, right? And their spiritual life was his joy. Just like it would be for any father that cared about his family. How would that joy be fulfilled? And that's what he's telling them here. He goes on to say in verse 2, Fulfill my joy, how? That you be like-minded. That you have the same intent and purpose. And that you have the same love, one for another. A reciprocal love, a mutual love. He's saying, I just want to see that with you. That would just fulfill my joy. That you treat each other that way. And he says, he goes on to say in verse 2 there, You would be of one accord. And that word is, means harmonious. One in spirit. It's like an orchestra. Actually, the word is where we get our word for symphony, a symphony orchestra. When it's all in union, you have different instruments all playing together, there's a beautiful sound that comes. And that's what he's saying. If you could just all be of one accord, all on the same note, living with each other in one accord, that's how they can fulfill his joy. And that is partially fulfilled, he's saying, by verse 3. And four, let nothing, he says, nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each of you esteem the other one better than themselves. And look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And that was the mindset of Abraham. Isn't that what we read back in Genesis when we talked about that? He told Lot, he says, let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee. Isn't that what Paul's saying here? And Abraham says, because we're brethren. He says, I'm not going to allow that to happen, Lot. 
I'm not going to allow this strife to affect us. I'm going to esteem you better than myself. I'm not going to selfishly grab what I could. So I'm going to look out for your interests first, is what he told Lot. You look over the land, and you see what suits your needs best, and you take that. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. You go to the left, I'll go to the right. And Paul is saying here in Philippians, when we think this way, when we're not selfishly looking out for ourselves, when we're considering the welfare of the church and the good of each other, of its members, before our needs and ambitions, when we think like that, then he's saying that is when we have the mind of Christ. And that's what he says there in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. Because what did he do? When you go on and read the rest of that chapter, he put his ambitions, his desire, his position, his glory, put it all aside. And what does it say he did? He took on the form, King James says, of a servant. The word is actually a slave. The king became a slave for our sake. The king of the universe, the creator of all things, humbled himself, laid all that aside and took on the form of a man, became, it says, of no reputation. And why? Because he esteemed our welfare better than his own, his own needs and ambitions. He was willing to let go and suffer an agonizing death so we could live. That's what Jesus did, and he said that's the kind of mind that we're supposed to have. So back to Genesis 13. Let me ask you a question. What was the source of strife between Abraham and Lot? And honestly, it's the source of most strife with people that are in the church or out of the church. And what is that? Money, covetousness, and power. That's the source here. So Lot's men and Abraham's men, they were striving with each other. Who should have the most pasture land and water? And nobody's willing to budge, right, and give away what they thought was theirs. So, you know, I'm figuring Lot's herdsmen, they probably purchased some land, say 40 acres or whatever, from the Canaanites. Then you got Abraham's herdsmen saying, well, 10 of those acres that you're saying are yours, we bought from the Perizzites. And... They're both entrenched on their opinion. Nobody's going to budge. And so this strife takes place. There's no give and take between these men, and you got a problem. And that generally is the source of strife. So I mentioned the other day about the Hatfields and McCoys, and they fit right in here. So they had a feud in their families. This is how the history goes. That lasted for 28 years. Nearly two dozen people were killed between the two families. Seven of the Hatfields were given life sentences because of this feud that went on. And they are, up to this day, universally understood as an example of two parties that refuse to be reconciled. And do you know what it started over? A hog. A hog. One pig started the whole thing, and it never stopped. Now, other things entered in besides the hog, but that is basically where it began. 28 years of bloodshed and lawsuits over the disputed ownership of one lousy hog. And that's the truth, right? So Floyd Hatfield had the hog, and Randolph McCoy said it was his hog. And the judge that decided the case was a Hatfield. Yeah, and so when that happened... <laughs> When he decided in favor of the Hatfields, the bloodshed began. 
and lasted many years. Now, do you know the show Family Feud? Don't waste your time watching it, please, okay? But it started back when I was a kid, and that's when I watched a lot of TV, all right, back in the 70s. But the show Family Feud was based on the Hatfield and McCoy strife. And so they had a special show in 1979, and you know what they had? On one side, they got all these. They had 10 Hatfield relatives. On this side, they got 10 McCoy relatives. And right in the middle, with Richard Dawson as the host, you know what was in a cage on the stage of the TV set? A hog! To remind everybody, this is how this thing started. And it never really officially ended until they actually signed a thing in 2003. I mean, they had quit fighting a long time ago. They shook hands back in the 1900s or sometime. I don't know. <laughs> a metal cage with a hog in the middle. So people fight over hogs. They'll fight over grazing land. They'll fight over inheritance. They'll fight over lovers. And they'll fight over positions. That's the kind of stuff people have feuds and fights over. And they strive over those things. Why? Because they have value to them. Now you would think, a hog? Listen, back in that day, in the late 1800s, a hog was worth a lot of money. It was, especially, we got guys over there now, this is eastern Kentucky. And a hog was worth a lot. And it was something they would fight over. But strife over money and covetousness, not uncommon. I mean, there's been several people in here, including myself, that was given an inheritance I had an uncle that died, gave an inheritance, and I'm telling you, my family, there are people to this day that will not even speak to themselves over the whole thing, and that's not uncommon. Leonard had the same thing happen, if I understand, and I'm sure there's been other people. Craziness over money. The amount of money that we got was nothing. It wasn't worth losing your family members over that you used to get along with well. But look in Luke 12, if you would. Jesus talked about that, a source of strife. Luke 12, beginning in verse 13, it says, And one of the companies said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto him, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Jesus says, look, I'm not in the business of making sure that you get every penny of this inheritance that you think is yours and that you think is going to set you off and make you rich. That's not what I'm about. So life is not about acquiring and getting everything that you think is yours and that you have a right to. And he says, take heed and beware of covetousness. So Abraham understood that principle, didn't he? And Paul in Philippians, he understood that principle. And Jesus understood the principle. He's just explaining it here. But the question is, do we understand that principle? If you would turn over to 1 Corinthians 6. So we're talking about how does strife come to an end. 1 Corinthians 6. Because here we have a couple people, apparently, that were striving over money. Some kind of deal. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? 
If then you have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. He says, I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother. Abraham wouldn't do that. And that before the unbelievers, Paul says. Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you because you go to law one with another. He says, why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? He says, no, you do wrong and defraud and that your brothers. Look at verse one. Look what he says. Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unjust. Remember, we said in the dispute that rose between the herdsmen of Lot and Abraham, the Perizzites and the Canaanites are watching what's going on. And Abraham was aware that he had a testimony. Him and Lot had a testimony before these people, before the world, and their testimony was at stake with this strife that was taking place. I think they were both regenerate at this time, and they had probably told the Canaanites and the Perizzites that they worshiped the God of heaven who would bless them and take care of them. That's what God had told Abraham. And he had a promise. Do you know that in chapter 12, Abraham had already been given the promise that said, In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. See, he knows he's got a responsibility in his faith in God that is going to extend to all the families of the earth. And that includes these tribes that are in Canaan. I'm sure he felt responsible to be a good testimony of God's grace and love to these unbelieving people around him. And that's what we have here in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says, he's telling them that, dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unjust. He's like, don't you know, you people, you Corinthians, don't you know who you represent? You represent whom? The Prince of Peace. What is the gospel? We've been talking about that. The gospel is one of reconciliation between God and men and between men and men. That's what the gospel is. And you're not representing that well when you take a brother to court. You're publicly striving with someone else. And he's saying right before the world, he tells them. And he says, dare any of you. First thing he says in 6.1, how dare you, he's saying, take a brother to court. Is that what it says? Dare any of you. And that he says before the unjust. Paul is appalled at the presumption of a brother taking another brother to court before the unjust. Because his thing is, how do you think these unjust people are going to be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ when they see this is all the better this God produces? That's all the better people that this king produces? And he goes on to say, don't you know that the saints will judge angels? And how great are angels? He's reasoning from the greater to the smaller. He's saying, we're going to judge angels. That is a great responsibility. He's saying, you're going to do that as saints, but yet you can't judge just this small earthly matter between yourselves? This small dispute? He says, take the least esteemed. One that is a saint that nobody has a lot of regard for. He says, set them as to the, be the judge between your dispute. He says, they're going to have a better sense of right or wrong than these heathen judges. Let them be the one to decide your case. And he's saying, I speak this to your shame. Verse 5, he says, I speak this to your shame. You should be ashamed of what you're doing there. 
And he goes on in verse 7, he says, Now therefore is utterly a fault among you because you go to law one with another. He says, Why don't you rather just take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? So if you feel like you are right and your brother is not going to listen to reason or agree with other brothers that you bring that say he's wrong, he says, well, rather than take him to court just because you know you're right and hold a grudge, he says, just take the wrong. Let yourself be cheated. Let yourself be defrauded. Rather than bring the church that represents the Prince of Peace into secular courts and ruin the testimony of them. Let yourself be cheated. So Christians, all of us in here, we should not be striving over money, over rights, over positions. It's not right. We should be willing to yield. We should be peacemakers. And sometimes it's going to cost us. But listen, when you're a peacemaker and you're, you're not going to strive with someone else and you're going to yield to them and resist not evil, Jesus said this in Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Or the children of Abraham, however you want to say it. But he says the children of God, Matthew 5, 9. So Abraham was the leader of that clan. He was the eldest and Lot's uncle. And back in that culture, when that was the case, that gave you the right to choose the land he wanted, how much land he wanted. And he could have taken Lot and all of his animals and livestock and stuck them over in a wadi dump back in that culture, and he couldn't have complained at all. That's the way things worked back then. But Abraham was a regenerate man. He'd been given a new heart. And a sign of that new heart was that there was evidence of love. He didn't have all the light we had, but a regenerated heart will always be a heart of love to represent God. It's his nature. God is love. And Anytime a person is regenerated, Old Testament all the way through, that is going to be evidenced in their life. They're going to have love. In Paul's great chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 6, 13, he says this, Love vaunts not itself. And he goes on to say, it seeks not her own. That's what love does. He says other things about love, but those two things I think are evident here with Abraham. In this story we're reading in Genesis 13. Love vaunts not itself. It doesn't praise itself. It doesn't boast. It doesn't brag. And Abraham didn't boast of his position in the family with Lot, didn't he? He didn't sit there and brag about, well, you know, I'm the one that had the faith to get us down here into Canaan. And I'm also the one that got us down into Egypt, skillfully worked things out with Pharaoh to where we got out of there. We're all still intact. And look how much of a blessing we have, Lot. He didn't get in and tell him all that stuff. Did he? he didn't praise himself. What does he do? He humbly tells Lot, we're brethren. Don't let there be any strife between us. He didn't have to act that way, but he's got the heart of God. He's a regenerated person. And 1 Corinthians 13 also goes on to say that love seeks not her own. It doesn't strive for one's advantage. So not only does Abraham not boast about his position, but he doesn't use that to strive for an advantage over Lot. Instead, he tells Lot, I'm saying this probably for the fourth time, the land is before you, Lot. I could take whatever I wanted. They both knew that. He said, but look, the land is before you, brother, nephew. You decide what you need, and whatever you take, I'll take the leftovers. That's what he told him. Just get what you want. Just go whatever direction you want, and I'm going to go the other direction. 
So he didn't seek to strive for his own advantage. He took the low road. And that's where we ought to be as Christians, on the low road. And how many times in our everyday lives do we have an opportunity to put the principles we're talking about today in practice? Like tonight. Now, tonight might not have been a problem. Plenty of seats available. But we all know where we're supposed to sit, don't we? Because we've all paid good money for our seats. That's the way it seems sometimes, right? And you come in here, and there's a visitor sitting in your seat. Is your first thought, well, praise God, I've got a good seat. He'll be able to see and hear really well. And that gives me a chance to go over on the other side of the room and sit with somebody that I haven't talked to for 10 years. Is that what you think? Right? Or what if it's not a visitor, but one of us, one of the brothers and sisters in here? Then the thoughts change to who do they think they are? What are they trying to do? Start trouble? What's their last name? McCoy? Or maybe it's Hatfield, right? It might happen this one time, I'll let them slide, right? But it ain't going to happen again, I guarantee you that. Because everybody knows that this is my side and my seat, right? And I have to go now to the other side and sit with those people, right? First Corinthian thoughts, all of them, right? So we get a chance to put that stuff into practice, don't we? In some practical ways. I'm going to give you a few things, and you, you could multiply it out a thousand times, right? Where we have to esteem others better than ourselves, and you have to eat humble pie to do that, don't you? And I had a brother suggested to me, he said, you know, what I think we ought to do is let everybody get in their seat, and right before we get ready to start church, tell everybody you've got to get up and go sit next to somebody that you've never sat next to before. And I'm like, we can't do that. <laughs> there won't be anybody left to preach to. <laughs> he was serious, I think. Anyways, so, you know, that's one case. And what about business dealings with other brothers and sisters? So we got people in here. We got a lot of guys with businesses, people that interact in business all the time. And there are bound to be conflicts. There have been conflicts. But the only reason for strife within our church is if people are not willing to follow the clear principles we've seen in the Bible tonight. Is that not true? So you would ask the question, does that mean if someone does you wrong, you can't say anything about it, you just have to eat it? Well, here's what I think. I think if somebody has clearly done you wrong, there's nothing wrong with going to them and trying to get things right. And if they've done something that's a clear sin, I think that could fall into the category of what we talked about a few months back on Matthew 18. You need to talk to them. You may need to take a few brothers with you to talk to them. You may need to bring it before the church. But the one thing you don't need to do is take them to court. Because we just read that in 1 Corinthians 6. It couldn't be any clearer. My little boy could understand that. And if that's the case, they're not going to pay you back. Rather than take them to court, what does Paul say? The best next thing to do, let yourself be defrauded. Let yourself be taken advantage of. And sometimes, though, even without getting into all that, People do stuff to you. Sometimes just let the whole matter slide for the sake of peace. It's just not worth stirring up strife over. And that's something you just need to pray about. I had people take advantage of me way back when. I had somebody promise me they'd pay me a wage. And when it wasn't to their advantage at the end of a job to pay me that wage, they tell me, well, I'm not paying you that. Now I'm going to pay you this. I just let it slide. I thought, praise God, he'll make it up for me somehow. I didn't get into it with him. I didn't think it was exactly fair, but that's the way it is. So you can bring it before the church, and the other is, and let somebody in the church decide. That's what Paul says. Or the other is, sometimes you can just take the wrong. 
can't you, when you have a business? And even dealing with people on the outside. One time I had a lady, I did over a week's worth of work for her at the time. That's a lot of money for me at the time. I didn't have a lot of extra money, and especially to eat a week's worth of wages. She didn't pay me. So I called her up. I said, you know, is there a problem with my work? Oh, no, everything's great. All right. Never got a check. I just forgave her the debt. I thought something, I don't know. She never told me why she couldn't pay me or whatever. Just put it in the Lord's hands. Let the Lord take care of it. He'll bless me some other way. I'm not going to harbor resentment or take her to court or keep calling her up. And you know what happened? It was several months after that. Lisa and I are eating dinners before we had kids. I get up and walk past the front door. There's something on the front door. Well, there's a check there. Wow. Well, it wasn't the full amount, but there is some money there. Right? And that just kept happening every so often. So she was embarrassed. I didn't call her up and like, you know, this is 200 and you owe me like 2,000. Where's the rest of it? No, I'm like, I thought she's embarrassed about that, but she's making an effort. And praise God, I, I didn't even bother counting it all up. I assumed she paid me everything. I'd forgiven her the debt, so this was all bonus money. <laughs> I praise God. I mean, he'll take care of us, will he not? He will. And that's what he did for Abraham. Do you know that? That's where that principle comes into effect. We read chapter 13. So he tells Lot, you take what you want. And Lot goes after the choice land, doesn't he? But God says, wait a minute. Let him go off, Abraham. You come up here with me. Takes him up on that mountain. Says, you look everywhere you can see. He got that for right now. I'm giving you everything you can see. To the left, to the right, to the north, to the south. Everywhere you walk, this is all going to be yours. Because I'm blessing you this way because you're a righteous man. You did the right thing. And that's the way it'll work. He'll bless us that way. Or another little practical thing I thought about is, what about when you all play basketball games? You're thinking, basketball How does that enter in here? Well, I've played in a lot of basketball games through the years. I've seen Christians argue over fouls and over the score, what the score ought to be, over a basketball game. People in churches. Seen it happen many times. And when I, so I'll take it out of here. When I first got saved, I played a lot of basketball, and in the church I was up there, we had some guys in Columbus, they were pretty good basketball players. We had one ex-college player, one all-state point guard, two good athletes, and me. This was before Greg came. He could have replaced me easily. But the five of us, we'd go and play up at Ohio State. We'd play pickup games, and we weren't playing against Christians, but we were Christians. And one guy in the group, I mean, he would get into it, major arguments with these guys over the score. Stop the game, and they're out there arguing, and we'd be like, brother, we got a testimony with these guys. <laughs> you can't, you're arguing over a score or over a foul. You know, this isn't going to work just over a basketball game. And so what should you do? You're just in a pickup game here at church or wherever you're at, or if you guys play for Cornerstone, and somebody does something, hey, look, don't retaliate. Don't complain. Just yield. Yield to them. They think they need to have 13 when they only should have 11. You've got 13, brother. And you're going to beat us? That's great. It's a basketball game. All right? But people fight over that kind of stuff. Or what if you're the one, another example, who spent hours helping somebody get ready for a party? And you hear all the guests, they're praising the host. Oh, man, you've done such a great job in praising something they've cooked. And you knew that you were the one that cooked it. Or did all the cleaning. Listen, don't strive to be noticed. You don't have to step in. Hey, you know, that is my favorite recipe, and it always works. <laughs> Just let it slide, or you could take it the other way around. 
You know, what if somebody has helped you and gone out of their way and taken a lot of time and you have this get-together and everybody's telling you, oh, man, this was so great and you had everything set up. So Don't be sitting there like this. Thank you. And that person's staying in there probably feeling like, I'll never do that again. No, I say, hey, if it wasn't for so-and-so, I couldn't have gotten anything done. They are the ones that really helped me out. They really are the ones that made this evening what it was. Yield to them. Be like Abraham. Don't seek your own. Be like Jesus. Seek the welfare of others. Right? That's the way we need to be. And what is the key to not living in strife with others? What do you think the key is? What else? Faith. It is faith. We have to trust that when we defer to others and they do us wrong, that God will make things right in the end, that our sovereign God will take care of us. Isn't that what we need to trust? Turn to Romans 12, beginning in verse 16. Paul writes this in Romans 12. He says, Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. And look at verse 18. If it is possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. As much as lies in us. And that's a lot more than we ever usually put forth, right? We need to humble ourselves with other people so we can be at peace with them. Blessed are the peacemakers. They are the children of God. And so we need to leave the injustice of a situation. He's talking about your enemies here. Your enemies are probably doing you wrong. And he says you need to leave the injustice of that in the hands of God, in the Lord's hands, because vengeance is his. And what should our only concern be towards our enemies and especially towards our brothers? What should our concern be? To show them love. Shouldn't it? It should be to show them love. Overcome evil with good. Now that's a whole lot easier said than done. I understand that. But that is what the Bible says that we're supposed to do. Somebody's done you wrong. Somebody at your work. Somebody at church. You overcome the evil with good. Not with more evil. Not with resentment. Not with unforgiveness. Not by avoiding them. That's not the way he says to overcome evil. And many times, it's costly in the short term to do that. And that's where your faith comes in. 1 Peter 2, it says this about our Lord. It says, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, and he left us an example, that we should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not but what did Jesus do? He exercised faith. He committed himself to him that judges righteously.
He knew he was being done wrong. He could have done something about it, but instead he exercised faith and says, I'm committing this to him that judges righteously. God will take care of it. God will vindicate me one day. And that's what Abraham did. I'm not going to strive with you, brother Lot. No, no, I'm going to put this in God's hands. Just choose what you want. I'll leave it in God's hands. He'll take care of me. And that's what we need to do. The Lord Jesus had his rights and his honor trampled on in the short term. But he trusted in God. And where is he now? It says in Philippians, God has highly exalted and given him a name which is above every name. And he'll do the same for us if we live in his steps. Because that's what 1 Peter 5 says. He says, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. That means we show deference to people. We're not trying to be the top dog in anything. And be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. That's what Jesus did. God is sovereign. He's put me in this situation. I'm not going to strive against this situation he's given me. I'm not going to fight against these people. Abraham said, I'm not fighting with you, Lot. I'm putting myself under the mighty hand of God, trusting in him. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. He's not going to keep us pinned under forever. In due time, and what you have to do when you're doing that, he goes on to say, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. Men are riding over my head. They're taking advantage of me. I got brothers that are riding over my head that shouldn't be, and I'm not going to fight them. I'll let God exalt me. He cares about me. We have to remind ourselves that. If I do the right thing, he'll take care of me. He sees your situation. He cares for you. And that's the faith we're called to. When we're done wrong, rather than strive and fight for our rights, we're called to follow in Jesus' steps and commit our life, our finances, our rights, our privileges, and our future to him that judges righteously. Because he will do right in the end. Called to be like Jesus. Trust God to take care of us. So there was a man I read about. It's a great biography if you can ever read it. This guy lived back in the late 1800s. He was an African man. His name was Samuel Morris. He was actually the prince of a king in this village in the jungles. His tribe and another tribe had gotten in a battle, and they had captured him, and they had beaten him to a bloody pulp and tied him to a tree. And when he's in that state, the Lord Jesus Christ miraculously appears to him and releases him from the bonds where he's tied to that tree, and he goes off into the woods. He meets these missionaries that tell him about the Lord Jesus Christ, and he gets saved. And he's like, I need to tell this to my people. I need to find out about God, the Holy Spirit, about this Bible. And they said, well, you just need to go to school. Go to a seminary, and they send him. he goes back to the States by faith. He had no money. He just prayed and said, God, would you get me there? So he goes to this university. I don't believe it's even still in existence now. Taylor University in Upland, Indiana, to be trained as a minister because he wanted to be able to go back and take the gospel to his people. And so he arrives at that university, and he's met by the school's president. And the president's showing him around, and he'd heard of Samuel Morris, and this guy just had the Holy Spirit on him to the point to where when he would 
pray and ride with people, they would just break down crying. And so he wasn't religious. And it wasn't a show. It was just really God's hand. If you read his biography, God's hand was really on him that much. So this president takes him around and he says, he asked Samuel, he says, which room do you want to live in, Samuel? And Samuel's reply was, well, if there's a room nobody wants, give it to me. Well, that doesn't sound like that big a statement. But that president later, he commented, he said, I had to turn away for my eyes were full of tears. He says, I was asking myself whether I was willing to take what nobody else wanted. And that's the heart of the message we're preaching tonight, isn't it? So we can follow the example of Sammy Morris. Or we can follow the example of Abraham in graciously yielding to Lot so that there would be no strife between them. And he says, I'll take what you don't want. But most importantly, we need to follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who laid aside his royal robes in place of honor, and he took what none of us wanted. And you know what that was? The humiliation and suffering of the cross. None of us wanted that. And he took it for us so that we could live. That's the example we need to follow supremely, right? So let's just keep that example in front of us as we go forward in these days, because we're going to need it, because it is going to get tough, and it's going to get tougher to love our enemies when persecution starts coming, and brothers betraying brothers. It's not going to be easy to love people, is it? But we can do it by the grace of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. And Father, we just thank you, Lord, for these true stories of these men that walk with you in the Old Testament that we can learn from their example. We can learn principles from their lives and how they lived their lives and, and how they walked with you and they were willing to yield and trust you to give them what they've given up. And we just thank you, Lord, for your word and speaking to us tonight. And I just ask, Lord, that you'll cause all of us to look at the Lord Jesus Christ and see his example and to walk in his footsteps that we have his mind in us because we have him in us and that we can allow ourselves to suffer humiliation on behalf of others for your glory and that one day if we do that, you will exalt us in due time. And I just thank you for teaching us that tonight. And I thank you for being with us and speaking to us in Jesus' name. Amen.